Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Deliciously Ella podcast with me, Ella Mills, and my husband and business partner, Matthew Mills. Hi, everyone. Hope you guys are having a great start to your week. We have been busily getting our cover ready for um, our brand new cookbook, which we will be sharing in our newsletter. If you're not signed up, that comes out every other week and it's full of um, brand new recipes and ideas and what we've been loving. So um, you can sign up on www.deliciousyella.com and you'll be the first to see our brand new book cover, what it's all about and the details of our big book tour, which we're going to be doing next year with some of our favorite podcast guests as well. So it'll be like Deliciousyella Live. So please stay tuned for that was super excited yeah it's been it's been busy time there's so much happening at the moment but i suppose the thing i'm most excited about that we've been doing this week is we're moving all of our breakfast range into bag and box um so we'll have a fully recyclable solution which we're really really excited about we've worked on for a long time that will be going into stores early next year yeah, and we so appreciate all your feedback on that. You know, being as sustainable as possible is so important to us and community feedback is so important to us. And I promise it would have been sooner, but these things are so much more complicated than I could have possibly understood. And putting them into store means delisting all our current cereals and then relisting them again. So that's just why it takes a little bit longer, but they are coming next year and we cannot wait. So today we're talking diet, myth versus reality, nature versus nurture and the power of our micros with Tim Spector. Tim is a professor of genetics at King's College London, whose work focuses on the microbiome and diet. Having published more than 800 research articles, he is ranked in the top 1% of the world's most cited scientists, and we're honoured to have him on our podcast today. So welcome, Tim. And I was saying to you earlier, my sister-in-law and her identical twin actually took part in one of your studies last year. So we saw a little bit firsthand how some of your work happens. But can you just kind of give us a bit of a background? How did you get started in this area? Sure. It all happened about 27 years ago when I had the only really good uh, idea of my life, uh, and it just happened to be the right one, which was to study twins and set up a UK adult twin registry, which has really been my life ever since, uh, following up 14,000 twins from all over the country, both identical and non-identical. And the first uh, 10 or 15 years, we were really doing cutting-edge research into nature v. nurture, working out that for virtually everything we saw, identical twins were more similar than non-identical twins for all kinds of diseases, personality to traits, behaviours, even things like religion and food preferences. And then I spent the next 10 years really discovering genes for hundreds of diseases, working with people around the world. But then the last 10 years, I started focusing on 
more the differences between identical twins, I started thinking, well, isn't it strange that these identical twins, who are essentially clones, who've lived 18 years of their life together, are not more similar, that they do get very different diseases, particularly autoimmune diseases, cancers, and they die at different times. didn't seem to make any sense based on how similar their genetics were and how important we thought that all was. And that led me to start working on a whole new area of gut microbes and what we call the, the microbiome, which is the community of 100 trillion microbes that live uh, throughout our bodies, but most of them, 99%, are in our lower intestine, the colon. And they're uh, like chemical factories. These guys produce thousands of chemicals and about half the vitamins and nutrients in, that flow around in our, in our bodies. They're important for our digestion, our immune system. These chemicals interact with our brains to... Um, make the difference between us being happy or sad. They can make us uh, full or uh, hungry. And they're really important for controlling allergies and the immune system and basically keeping everything under control. And the way to think about this microbiome is, is not as a diffuse set of nasty bugs uh, sitting in your poo, but actually as a, as a virtual organ. So that is really how We've been forming these ideas slowly over the last 10 years. And we now realize that we've, we've discovered a, a new organ in our bodies. And my work has really been looking at how our diet interacts with that organ and that interaction, how that leads to disease or prevention of disease or, or general health. So that's, that's really where I am today. And I think this is the most exciting uh, part of medicine uh, going on at the moment. And many people agree with me. Yeah, well, I, I definitely agree with you on it. And I was reading your book, The Diet Myth. And what's fascinating is how you're kind of showing that it's it's your microbes, for example, that determine why one person can eat one meal and another person can eat the exact same meal. And yet it can have a completely d different impact on them. Why someone will gain weight eating the same amount of calories every day as someone else. You know, some people have kind of predetermined to like exercise and others aren't. Is that is that right? Yes, we found that identical twins, although they share 100% of their genes, only share about 30% uh, of their gut microbes, which is quite amazing, really. And we know that everybody out there has a completely unique set of gut microbes. You need to see more than 10,000 people to see anyone. Uh, all those 10,000 will have a unique microbe or a species that no one else has that is capable of maybe producing a chemical in response to a food or a stimulus that other people aren't. So once you understand that enormous variation, um, you realize that, you know, we've been thinking of our differences in base of our genetics, and we're 99.5% similar. So we're all fifth cousins, basically. <laughs> on, uh, you know, everyone in London is probably on average a fifth cousin. But we're not when it comes to our gut microbes. We we share only about 25% of our gut microbes with each other. So that you can tell much more about someone from examining their gut microbes than you actually can from their DNA. Uh, and, and, that's, and this is me as a geneticist uh, saying this. So I think we're, you know, we're just scraping the barrel of what we can understand with these. But once you realize this individuality, um, even within the same family – even if you've grown up together or you've you know you're been with your spouse for 30 years eating the same foods 
you're going to have a very different response to the same meal. And it starts to explain many of these mysteries that we've been looking at. And I think the best example is a really good study last year um, in California of 609 overweight Californians called the Diet Fit Study. They all wanted them to lose a little bit of weight. So they were slightly uh, calorie restricted, but not majorly. It was a healthy diet. Uh, and one was focusing on low fat and the other was on low carbs. And this was supposed to be the definitive study to prove that um, a low-carb, high-fat diet was better, uh, as the new trend is. That, it's like know, a keto, keto diet. Yeah, it was yeah. a sort of milder, milder version of the keto diet. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like as high levels of fat as that, which have to be over about 70%. And it turned out that both groups lost weight, as happens in most diets, but they both lost about five kilos. It was a complete draw. So the paper said, oh, this is terrible. You know, we still can't decide what to do. But within each group, some people had uh, lost 25 kilos <laughs> and some people actually gained 10 kilos. Wow. So if you looked at the individuals rather than the means, you store much more of an important story that if you could work out which diet was going to suit you, you could be in that minus 25 category and avoid being in those people that that diet really didn't suit at all. And we think, you know, these people did comply. Yeah. And all the, all the data in all the studies does show this enormous difference. And at the moment, everyone's just being told, you're useless, you should feel guilty, you know, you're not, don't have the willpower of someone else. And yet, you know, the reality of the biology is that we're all so different. The way we interact with food, even, you know, within the carbohydrates or within the fats, we might be responding differently to different types of them. So once you understand that, it sort of puts all the advice we get about uh, food into, into a rather different perspective. And the idea that there is one size that fits all really no longer makes any sense. And so these people who prescribe weight loss diets, who say you must do gluten-free, you must do lactose-free, you must do um, the keto diet for everybody, it's going to work for some people but absolutely not for everybody. And it could have, be very harmful for some people. And so, so is, is that nature or nurture? Like is, the, is our difference in microbes something that evolves as we grow up? Like what determines the fact that two siblings or even two twins or, you know, a husband and wife or flatmates or something have some, such a different microbiome? We start life with a blank slate. So we're born pretty much sterile, um, so we acquire all our, our gut microbes from day zero. And that's why every mammal has a natural birth that's very messy. The whole idea is that microbes enter the baby that way from the mother. And that allows the baby to then colonize uh, with the right microbes in their gut so they can then break down the rather complicated carbs and proteins in breast milk. And that starts the whole process. So for the first three years of life, we're building up a, this complex relationship of our gut microbes. But those first three years are quite crucial. And that's why we think that there's big differences in the first three years between babies born by cesarean section, which is now about a third of the population. And breastfeeding, of course, is another way to introduce the microbes as well, which you don't get with uh, normal formula feed. So everything is starting to make sense from a microbial point of view, what we know is healthy, you know, natural birth, breastfeeding, and also not over-sterilizing that 
period of childhood, which we started in the 80s, sort of getting obsessed with spraying surfaces with detergents and um, wiping out all, all microbes, when in fact, a healthy kid is someone who gets dirty and uh, plays with animals and uh, so we shouldn't, around in the soil. So we shouldn't worry about our dog Austin licking Sky's face as he, as he <laughs> likes to do now. <laughs> Absolutely, you should encourage it, probably. Yeah. I mean, as long as you know where he's been, <laughs> oh, I don't know about more or that. less. Hasn't rolled around. It's a mystery to us all. Hasn't rolled around with a dead badger or something. But um, in general, studies show that your skin microbes are certainly a lot healthier if you've got a dog than if you don't have a dog. Because you will swap quite a few of your microbes with your dog at home. So as adults, are there things that influence our gut microbiome? Because I know... Again, I was, I was just admitting to Tim that I've been stalking him and I was watching a YouTube video of him yesterday and you were talking about a McDonald's study, which was really interesting. Yes, so there's good and bad things that influence your gut mic, but you, you seem to want to start on the bad things. Um, <laughs> so for my book, I was doing all kinds of research. I did a vegan diet for six weeks uh, and then I did the f- French cheese diet for, for three days, which was only eating unpasteurized uh, raw milk French cheese, which Thoroughly recommend for a day, although not quite uh, three days. Uh, And it definitely helps with red wine. Uh, And the next thing I was going to do was to have 10 days of eating all my meals at McDonald's. So it was was just a a Big Mac and fries uh, with an occasional bit of chicken nuggets and see what happened before and after my gut microbes. And I wasn't particularly looking forward to this. And I'd heard that people do get sick on it. Others exactly, who did supersize the, me. He looked very ill after. He, so that's why I didn't want to do it for six weeks. Luckily, another volunteer came along who actually liked eating um, burgers and McDonald's. He was hard up for cash. He was a student and he also happened to be my son. <laughs> so he ticked all the boxes. And uh, Tom did this, and he was a real celebrity at his university. People used to follow him to the uh, local McDonald's and cheer him on as he they used to give him extra free portions and things. But he he, he phoned me up after four days and said, uh, Dad, I'm really feeling rather sick now. Everyone says I look rather ill. Uh, I think we perhaps ought to stop. And as, as a responsible parent, I said, of course, Tom, but we're going to carry on. Uh, there's no way you're going to stop. We've got to publish this in the Sunday Times. And that's exactly what we uh, we did. And he carried on for the 10 days. And the, the important fact was that he lost 40% of his uh, gut diversity. That's a measure of the gut health, is how diverse, how many different species of microbes you have in your gut. And he'd lost an enormous amount in that time. And I sent him... Uh, various food parcels afterwards, lots of fr- uh, fruit and veg. We tested him six months later. And there was no difference. Um, There's no difference from before. He, he hadn't picked he, up. He, went, he hadn't picked up the ones he'd lost. No. So, uh, you know, sent him some more, and then by the time he'd, he'd come home and he was eating a lot of food with us, and it was pretty good food, and forgot about it for a while. And the, but we tested him still two years later, and he was still in the bottom five percent of the diversity range. Wow, so he never recovered from... Well, he has just now recovered, so it took him about three and a half years. Wow. The important lesson here is that, like any garden, and I think the analogy of your gut microbes is best thought of in in a garden analogy, is if you've got... You may start with a decent uh, supply of different plants and soil and microbes, but if you neglect it, you don't give it any fertiliser, you don't give it anything to eat 
uh, and everything's sugary and, and, and fatty and doesn't get down to the colon, they will die off and there may be nothing left to revive. And can you only manage that through food? No, you can uh, do that through the environment as well. And uh, that's a depressing message. So I, uh, there is lots of evidence that, you, that for shorter periods of time, or if you're not really starving your gut microbes of fibre for 10 days, which most people wouldn't do that, they'd have some fibre in that 10 days. So it was the missing fibre that was the fundamental issue, rather than what it was, so high fat or kind of overly processed. It was actually what was missing, which was the fibre that was the fundamental issue. Well, that's our hypothesis. But in a way, the the classical teaching of this would be that junk food is bad for you because of the high sugar and high fat. I don't really believe that because you know, most things get converted to sugar and uh, fats. It comes back to our rather reductionist idea of nutrition that we've inherited for the last 40 years, perhaps from the food companies trying to distract us from the reality of of all the extra chemicals in there, just by talking about, oh, this can be low fat, therefore it's fine, or low sugar, tick, and you forget about the 20 other ingredients. So we now know that many of the other ingredients of fast foods or ultra-processed foods are bad for the gut as well. So artificial sweeteners everything that's in a, a Diet Coke, a Diet Pepsi, uh, and many other foods now, because as they're trying to reduce the sugar content, they're replacing it with these chemicals, are not recognized by our microbes as a natural chemical, and our body reacts and produces abnormal chemicals in response, which can make us fatter and more likely to have diabetes. So I think sweeteners are really one of the biggest um, threats to the future as we're switching from sugar to these artificial uh, compounds, which no one's bodies have seen before. They're you know, often made from coal tar or some industrial waste byproduct. And so our microbes have no clue what to do with them and they struggle to break them down. But there's also emulsifiers and there's um, various acids and enzymes and mixtures that go in in these, these chemical processing that also probably play a, a negative role for our gut microbes. So I think it's that chemicals plus the lack of fibre has this dramatic effect um, more than the old-fashioned way of just saying, oh, it's a bit too much fat. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, in the end, you break it down uh, to fatty acids and glucose. And so what's your diet made up of? It's always evolving. Yeah. So as I said, I don't think we, anyone knows what the right diet is. But I, I've slowly shifted my eating based on a lot of my own self-testing. As you were talking about the PREDICT study, uh, I've taken part in that multiple times. I've spent several months with a, a continuous glucose monitor on my arm so I can see every five minutes what food is doing to me on re in real time by reading out on my, my phone. It's quite a revelation, really, when you realize how quickly your body's reacting to things. So 10 years ago, I would have what most doctors would call a healthy breakfast, which would be a bit of high-quality muesli, a bit of low-fat milk or soy milk, a small amount of orange juice and a cup of tea, or sometimes with some bread, uh, maybe bread and marmalade. My sugars would go really high. Have any kind of muesli or even porridge, my sugar levels would go up near the diabetic range. So I'd be starting with this real sugar peak in the morning, and I'd be sort of hungry again by lunchtime and uh, and. You know, it was just normal because that's what everyone did. And I switched to a high-fat breakfast now. So I have full-fat 
Greek yogurt and berries, nuts, seeds, and a black coffee. I will occasionally have a bit of sourdough, homemade sourdough bread with that, either with butter or olive oil. So I tend to eat less lunch because I worked out my hospital lunch for about 15 years was a tuna and sweet corn uh, sandwich on brown bread, which looked super healthy. Uh, and it turned out that, again, was really bad. That any, any sort of bread just tickled my glucose right up and I would have a few grapes and that was even worse. So I'd have been better off having a spaghetti bolognese or a full curry and rice would have been better for my metabolism. And so I've stopped having those regular sandwiches that most British people would have for lunch. And that seems to have made a big difference to me. And I, I generally now have a light lunch. It might just be nuts and seeds and some fruit uh, if I'm working. And then I have a, a large, mainly vegetarian meal. So I, I've, I've virtually given up meat. I did give up meat uh, completely for a few years, but I got B12 deficient because I started with a fairly low B12 level for perhaps genetic reasons or I had some nasty gut infection when I was about 18. And so I was having B12 injections and I realized that nah, doesn't sound very natural. So I now have meat once or twice a month uh, and that seems to keep my metabolism straight. So I might have fish two or three times a month as well. But I try and vary things. I try to also have a diverse range of plants, not the same plants all the time. Because we we did a study with a citizen science project called the British Gut Project, which teamed up with the American Gut Project that we run. We looked at 11,000 people's gut microbes. They all sent in their samples, we called it the poo in the post study. <laughs> and they filled in questionnaires about what they were eating. And it turned out that people who had the healthiest guts, which is generally the most diverse, were the people eating more than 30 different types of plant in a week. And you say, whoa, 30 types of plant, who are you? You know, you must work in a greengrocer's or something. But people forget what a plant is. A plant can be a nut, a seed, a grain. It can be a herb, a spice. And so it's actually not that hard as long as you don't have the same thing every day. And so that, that diversity was much more important than if you were vegan or vegetarian, or meat eater. We did also did a study about which alcohols might be better or worse for you, measuring gut diversity, and we did this in several thousand people in three countries. And the one drink that came out on top was uh, red wine. So drinking one to two glasses of red wine was associated with the healthiest gut diversity. Whereas one to two glasses, how frequently? Sorry. Uh, every hour, no, uh, <laughs> so, no per day. Okay. So we're talking six to ten you know, glasses a week. White wine didn't have the same effect. There was a suggestion of a white wine benefit, but it wasn't significant. Mm -hmm. And other alcohols had no effect or slightly negative effect. And we think that's because not of the alcohol, but of the other thing that's good for your microbes, these polyphenol chemicals. And so going back to your lunch and your discovery, that's all about the personal nutrition, right? So it's not necessary that everyone would react to bread in that way. Likewise, some people may have done better on your original breakfast than on your secondary breakfast. That's, that's where personal nutrition comes in. That's exactly right, yes. So that's what we're finding in our studies, that 
Um, and people's metabolism is very different. We're all told to never skip breakfast, eat little and often. This is what the NHS uh, guidelines tell us. And in most countries, the nutritional guidelines will say it's dangerous to do it otherwise. The data doesn't support that. Most of that data was 30 years old based on about nine people because their metabolism when you're young is actually generally better in the mornings and it gets worse as you get later in the day. And, and how so, can someone go about finding what is the best setup for them? Really, you've got to start doing some, get involved in some personal nutrition trials. So I've teamed up with some entrepreneurs in the internet uh, who've been working with us for the last couple of years, funding this big study called PREDICT, which has looked to several thousand people in the UK and the US, giving each person two weeks of testing to see how they respond to their meals, both in terms of their sugar levels and their fat levels. So we give everybody the same food. So everyone has these standardized muffins. The idea is that you give everyone a standard meal and everyone responds differently. So your sugar level changes eightfold between normal people response to the same food and your fat level six hours later how much fat is left in your body is also about eightfold difference that has never been shown before everyone just assumes we're average so then you do this for thousands of people you can start to map out predict how anyone's going to respond to a certain food once you know about the food once you know about the person and that's what we're doing now that we have a sort of prototype where we can uh, having done this test for two weeks with these muffins, and you can now do it at home with a glucose monitor stuck on your arm and doing a few finger prick tests, we can predict with about 75% accuracy how you'll respond to any food and give you a plan, a meal plan that's going to say how to minimize your glucose peaks or to minimize how much fat is left in your body six hours after you've eaten it. And I think this is very much the way forward that if we start to get hundreds of thousands of people doing this, then we can start to build really, really clever models in the same way that the internet has done to know what you're shopping yeah. for on the internet. Those adverts for shoes will follow you around. And they're very accurate because it's based on millions of data points. And that's what we can do with nutrition. So we're entering this really new area uh, where you can start to personalize it. And we already have an app that should be available next year that people will be able to actually sort of Google in any food for them or scan a barcode in a supermarket and give them their personal rating in terms of its how good is it for my sugar, how good is it for my fat level, how good is it for my gut microbes. So cool. So we really are close to being able to do that on a mass scale. We are. Yeah. It's going to be relatively crude initially, uh, but it's going to get better and better as we get more data, as more people uh, join up and do this. So, you know, I think it, it's going to mean people will be able to make more better choices about the foods they eat. And hopefully it's going to also educate people more about the food and move away from this ridiculously simplistic idea that food is uh, calories, carbohydrates, fat and protein, that the food manufacturers have been desperate for us to follow this the rubbish that's on those food labels saying low in sugar low in this and ignore you know the realities of what really is good for us 
So really, it's it kind of completely destroys, as you said, all those myths that like it's calories in versus calories out or, you know, all those kind of challenges of like exercise more and eat a teeny bit less and you'll lose weight, for example. Like basically it shows that all of that is fundamentally not quite right. Yeah, well, exactly. They, there's no evidence behind it. But everyone's loved that message because we've be you know, all the big food companies, all the governments have, have based everything around it and they're been spending millions on trying to indoctrinate us with this idea that exercise, for example, is a good way of losing weight. There isn't a single study that's of any decent that's actually shown that. Unless you're a professional athlete, you're going to probably end up weighing more if you exercise because your body just reacts to it to conserve food and put on that fat later. And the way we all react to calories anyway is completely different. So all these myths are being dispelled now. And I think we are really in a tipping point here that it isn't just a few crackpots out there saying the system's wrong. We're hearing the people in the nutrition departments in Boston and Harvard and Tufts coming out and saying, you know what, we've got it all wrong. So what's the future? Because I think what's it's kind of equal parts exciting and a bit sad in a way that we have all this information, like it exists. As you said, there's incredible research and data showing that this is the reality and yet everyone's kind of peddled the same thing again and again and again. I think also that, you know, undoubtedly probably impacts on people's mental health as well because they think, you know, I don't have any willpower. How does that the reality become the norm? You know, how does that be what the NHS and, you know, the health systems across the world kind of base their work on? Well, it's very hard to change these big institutions. And I don't think there's any field that I've worked in that has such resistant, stubborn views. And I've worked in a number of different medical science areas where people are quite honest to say they've made mistakes and uh, reverse their views. But I'm and why is that, do you think? Is that because food's such a kind of emotive, you know, personal, kind of almost quite touchy subject? I think so. The field of nutrition science is, new, is a new field. And it's only been going about 30 years, whereas things like physics or genetics, you know, hundreds of years of, of study. And, and nutrition science has never had the prestige of other areas. So I think there's a sort of insecurity there. It's also been underfunded. And so... Most of the funding for all the universities comes from the food companies. So you've got to realize the, the influence they have. Most of the professors don't want to go out and say they're wrong and badmouth the food industry because their funding will stop. But I think it has to be a bottom-up approach, and I think people are showing that. Um, we are going back to local shops. We're going back to farmers' markets. Um, I think that's probably the way things are going to happen rather than waiting for these these top-down approaches from government. And I think personalising nutrition, as you said, it is, is slightly scary because people say to me, well, what does that mean? You know, you've got your family sit down to dinner and everyone's looking at their app and saying, okay, is this good or bad for me? <laughs> but I think what it should show is that we're going to have to diversify our food. And if we just have a different meal every day, it will even out. And uh, we have to be a bit more flexible about what we eat. It's so easy to get into food ruts. Yeah. The average uh, UK supermarket has over 20,000 different food products. And we put the same things into our basket. Every time. Every time. 
Uh, Apparently, we all have seven recipes. You know, that's our kind of repertoire. It's about seven recipes each. What can we do to add to our microbiome as adults? Firstly, have many plant-based diet, high in fibre. Try and achieve as a goal thirty different types of plant. We should have regular fermented foods, and you know things like the three Ks: kefir, kombucha, uh, kimchi. A small amount regularly is what you need, not rather than one big feast every every two weeks. Mm-hmm. So a little shot of something as you leave the house is good. Then focus on uh, high polyphenol foods. So these used to be called antioxidants. These are chemicals that all plants have as defense mechanisms that they used to fight off the sunshine or infections or stop other animals eating them. And generally they're in the dark-colored fruits and vegetables, so things like berries or red cabbage and things like this. And they're also in nuts, seeds. Uh, They're in foods like coffee, green tea, olive oil, uh, and red wine. So they're like rocket fuel for your gut microbes. The other thing to do is probably to not graze as much. So move away from this idea that we should be eating something every two or three hours. Microbes actually like a period of fasting. So we always fast overnight unless you're up at the fridge at two in the morning. Most people are sleeping and that's our how other gut community comes out that cleans up our gut lining during that time. And instead of eating the food in your gut, they start to eat the uh, mucus layer of your, your gut, which has sugars. It's actually quite sweet and tasty for them. And if they nibble away at it, it keeps it nice and clean. Other things are good. So good night's sleep. There's some evidence in animals that exercise is also good for your gut microbes. Avoiding antibiotics. We use probably three times too many antibiotics and a lot of people totally abuse them and they can, in some people, wipe out your gut microbes and others it's only a temporary effect, it's hard to know. And avoid highly processed foods. So avoid all the, the chemicals that we were talking about, artificial sweetness, etc. And there's some evidence that actually sugar might be better for you than actually these artificial sweeteners. So, Tim, we always end each episode with kind of three take-homes for our listeners, three things to really remember from everything that we've talked about today. What would they be? Everybody is unique because they've got a unique set of gut microbes. Feed your microbes and keep them diverse and they'll help you. Every time you eat, realise that with 100 trillion gut microbes inside you, You'll never eat alone again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so no one ever needs to be lonely. Well, Tim, thank you so, so much. It's been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's been a real honour having you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Have a lovely week, everyone, and we will see you back here next Tuesday. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.